0: Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm excited to talk to Francesca Royster about her book, Choosing Family, and Memoir of Queer Motherhood and Black Resistance. Welcome, Franny.
1: Thank you, Dan. How are you?
0: I am wonderful. How are you?
1: Very well. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to talk oh, to you
0: today. I'm so happy. I came to this book uh, knowing that it would be good because I know you're publicist, so uh, <laughs> which is always a good thing. But I came to this book looking to learn something, and boy, did I. You share such a love story that just was so profound. Uh, Congratulations on a great job.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dan.
0: My pleasure. One of the things that I was so impressed about was you talk about your mother and your grandmothers and how they took in people uh, who needed taking in at the moment. Some stayed for a little while, some stayed for a longer while. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you?
1: Well, it's funny because the, the history of my great-grandmother, I, by the time I came around, um, she had kind of shifted to folks in the family who needed home and who were kind of in between their households. And so I really, I really admired it, and I was also just very curious about the lives of you know, my uncle and then my mom had these great stories of folks who were like distant relatives or strangers who were there. And she she was actually a writer herself and um, would write about like being allowed to wander into the rooms and kind of look at all the different like jewelry or bottles of perfume of the people who lived in, in the other parts of the house. And to her, it was like this amazing place of... Um, like just seeing how other people live and connecting and bringing them in. And then um, I think at Seely's at my great grandmother's house, the kitchen was a common space. So that was where, you know, uh, she didn't have to prowl around. You could actually like <laughs> hang out with people and talk to them. So when um, when my mom, um, you know, would bring in um, friends or relatives and they would stay, or, or now when um, Annie and I, have friends over our our kitchen table is kind of that place of connection and commonality. And I mean, if we were more wealthy, we would have more spaces, <laughs> but <laughs> the table is it. So, um, but that's a really great place. And you know, food is such a common connector. Cooking together when you can, um, and that's really a place where I heard a lot of stories and really kind of grew to understand how important. It is to connect to people who might not be totally from the same experiences that you that you have to find common ground.
0: I found that growing up, a little phrase that I heard uh, from relatives were if they allowed you to put your feet under their table. Uh-huh. And why, because it is that is a shared experience. You know, I think the kitchen more than anywhere else in the living room, you can have a conversation. But when you're in the kitchen, you become intimate. Yeah, you, you get to share that. That's something that I noticed with you and your wife Annie in the book. A lot of discussions about adopting when you got CC. A lot of the discussions take place in the kitchen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is commonplace. And even now, you know, we wake up really early to get everybody, you know, get the lunches ready. And I know it sounds very conventional, but you know, just those things getting the coffee and um it is a place where we figure out, you know, sometimes problem solve on the spot, we connect, we kind of, you know, get our little hugs in for the day or the morning. So it's a really important place. It's also, you know, being in Chicago, it's physically warm. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Yes,
0: yeah, yes.
1: There's always something about food that just um helps helps sustain you. And um even when we're giving a party, Um, give a lot of parties like dinner parties. Well, before the pandemic, we gave more, but um, people would come in and they would start like chopping up things. And it was an important place to also kind of give up a little power because when someone else, when a friend or even a relative goes into your kitchen and starts messing with your food, you know, you've got to trust them a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: a whole lot, often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, one of, so this book is about, partially about adopting uh, your daughter. Mm-hmm. And you talk about in the book, there are three ways that people get children. Yes. Um, can you describe those three ways and your experience with them?
1: Sure. Yeah. Okay. So there is, um, maybe there are even more than three ways, but one way that is kind of historically, has been historically true of African-American families has been kind of informal adoption, like absorbing members of the family. And that's kind of, you know, sort of what my great-grandmother did and what other folks who I, I know and who are related to that if there was you know, a family crisis, then you stepped in and you took care of the child and raised them hopefully as your own uh, for however long they needed you. Um, Then there is adoption that is through the foster care system. And that's also, you know, a lot of people um, work that way. It's a way also of sort of stepping in in terms of crisis too mm-hmm. um, but there's also that intermediary of you know the state of government so okay. there's some ways that we wrestled with that form of adoption because sometimes it felt like it was being used as a punishment you know for men and women but especially women um, and so we we just paused about that. And then, um, and then there's formal adoption, like private adoption, um, which was the route that we took. Um, and this particular agency that we went with, uh, the cradle in Evanston, Illinois, um, really has a, a an approach that emphasizes open adoption. Um, and what that open adoption can look like is really dependent on an agreement between the birth family um, and you the adopted family. So um, really in this, with this agency, the birth family kind of has the reins, And so they really decide the limits and how much information there is. So for some folks, um, like some of the parents that we, were, we grew up with or like we were trained with, um, they actually like met the, the birth families—they—they they visited with them. They were kind of integrated into part of their lives. In our case, we have you know occasional emails, and um, but we also know um, some of the daughters who are also of the of the, of the birth moms, so um, who are also adopted. So, um, but the cradle um, also holds information. So if a if a birth family and decides they don't want to have any communication. Um, You can still as a parent or even as a child write letters and they will keep an archive so that at some point if a parent is ready, birth parent is ready, they can have communication or at least have a history of connection. So they're really like, I think, recognizing the ways that the the older approach to adoption as something that you didn't talk about socially and that, um, that kids weren't supposed to know about especially. Um, that that wasn't a healthy, or it could be an unhealthy approach, you know, sometimes it worked. But, you know, (laughs) it's important to, um, you know, give agency on both sides. And that, at the heart of that, I think, is recognizing really that it's, it's a very, to choose an adoption plan is a very, um, I think, ultimately, a heroic thing, if you've scrutinized your life and realized that, for whatever reason, you're psychologically, economically unable to give the best life to a child to really be able to find the the folks that you really want your child to, to, um, the family that you want your child to be part of is really deliberate and kind of sacrificial um, thing, because I'm sure it's not, not having been in that position, I'm still sure that it. You know, it's a really difficult decision and it continues, like even after adoption, the difficulty of it, you know, continues. So
0: it is a a birth mother carries a child to term and there are all kinds of emotions that go along during that term. Mm -hmm. I will never be in that position to have to give up a child, but I can only imagine that a lot of birth mothers realize that the child would be better off somewhere else. The sad thing is, I think for so many years, we've looked, uh, well, not we, I, some people have said that, you know, oh, that mother is X, Y, Z. And those things simply may not be. The ultimate outcome is what happens with the child. It's so much less what society thinks and so much Mm -hmm. about what the child needs in that moment. I noticed in the book, one of the things that you talk about so openly is the fear of if you went with foster care um, that route that if the child was only temporary because we do get attached to other humans and I tell you I felt that through my whole soul that I Mm -hmm. was like because I think that would have been the same reaction I would have had yeah it's 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 a very (laughs) it's a very moving and very tender thing because I think to adopt It comes with a lot of things, and one of the things that you talk about in the book is you and Annie having to set up a profile, and that hit me straight out of left field, and I'm like, a profile? Because you think of dating sites and stuff like that, and I understand. Tell me about the profile and, and how that played with your mind.
1: Oh, it really did play with my mind. Yeah, it's true. Well, you know, before we, when we started the training, we were with kind of a cohort, you know, like you were going through graduation um, of other people. We also looked at um, the profiles of other people um, who came before us. And we, we also had workshops with parents who had adopted and they talked about their experiences, but the profile was a really funny thing. There's like the online profile, which is more schematic And then you make a physical book, like a a photo book uh, representing yourself. And like it was in some ways, maybe it got my mind ready to write a memoir because it was about like thinking about who's the public facing self, but also like you don't want to be completely public because you want people to know who you really are. So how do you convey that in, you know, in visuals, you usually have photographs or you might have. Some script, and it's also something that you have to create that's accessible to different kinds of folks, different levels of education. (laughs) There's so much that you want to signal, but Annie and I really also just wrestled with the fact that because we're unconventional in that we are, you know, we are in our 40s and 50s, um, that we were two lesbians, that we were a mixed race couple. Uh, like there are ways that we did and didn't want to follow the examples that we saw in the mm-hmm. photo books, which are usually like in general, they were very sparkling clean and very, you know, pretty and very neat and controlled. And like, we are many things, but we're, um, you know, like we're kind of alive. We have a lot of stuff around, we are connected to a lot of people, um, You know, so we included in our photo book like a lot of photos of ourselves with our chosen family, uh, the people who are the friends that are especially close to us, with our blood family. You know, lots of eating scenes. We put in a few scenes of us like doing hiking and things like that because we do actually do hike, but not (laughs) quite as much. From the photo book because we wanted to look, you know. active that's right (laughs) and our daughter as it turns out is incredibly active so nice even if we um weren't active before we we definitely are now like she climbs trees (laughs) she does gymnastics in the house like she's very very energetic person so
0: i love that (laughs) i do know that one thing that you mentioned and it is something that as we age which is an which is the process we all go through. Yes. You know, you start looking at, will I be old enough to pick up a newborn or one that's crawling around or run behind one? And I do think that that's, that's always something that's on everyone's mind. But I also like the fact that you and Annie decided to do it a little later. Yeah. Uh, the love story, which really came through between the two of you is how really you worked well together. That you are very clear about a couple of what I might call rough patches or patches where you need a little space, but mm-hmm. I really felt—I mean, you—you you guys came back as such stronger adults. Uh, cheers to that! And mm-hmm. I, and you give a child something different in the fact that if you were both eighteen or twenty, you give mm-hmm. that child that but you're both academics and you've had a career and you have a career and you give CC something very different. So I think that's a great thing.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. I, I hope that's like, we never knew what exactly was the combination of things that brought, brought us together with CC's birth mom, but she did have this, this photo book, but we think that it is some of the things that are, you know, our assets as, as folks who have built careers and are passionate about them and then we've traveled and, you know, we've just lived and also, you know, taking care of people and nurturing yeah. people before uh, before we became mothers. So we hope that that came through. Um, but I think that our, our love story part was really important because um, even more than we thought, like being a parent is really challenging and you have to mm. kind of, no even if we're not always on the same page and we're not always always on the same page because we're totally different people but like we understand each other and we have like a basic faith in the goodness of one another so that gets us through a lot and, um, yeah so it, i love it was, that and it, it comes
0: through um, oh now- yeah it really does. Now, I have to mention one person in the book that I am willing to run over with anybody's baby stroller, and that's a character named Lynn. I was just, I was, I was blown away by some of the things she said. And yeah. what I realized is, unfortunately, there are a lot of people like Lynn in this world. Yeah. Um, I, at least what I read, and I'll ask you to speak about it, I felt that she was so judgmental that. You adopted, and Mm -hmm. that someone would give a child up. And it, there again, that sort of shook me to my core because I was like, wow, no filter whatsoever. Was that how you took it?
1: Yeah, it was. Sometimes I have found that, you know, as an adoptive parent, we find ourselves just in these conversations that are very personal and very frank and um yeah like lots of times people don't realize that what they're saying is very judgmental and really you know like a private you know some private thing so um yeah and you know that person is someone who i think that she was well-meaning and i think that she was bringing with her a very okay i'll just say heteronormative kind of framework for the world in that like for her as a pregnant person married person that like she's like the ideal and everybody else is kind of like the mm. you know sort of someone someone who is asking permission for you know for yeah. our existence but I really in including that scene like that you know all my writing teachers always say yeah don't write for revenge and so I really wasn't writing <laughs> for revenge but I was I did want to just kind of articulate things that we've heard different versions of which are you know like Uh, that we've saved Cece or that she, you know, as, you know, adoptive parents are, yeah, kind of there to save someone who's been thrown away, which, you know, that's a terrible feeling and a terrible idea, but it is one in our culture. So, you know, I just wanted to kind of give voice to that and also to think about those spaces, sometimes those family spaces or kids spaces can be just a place of yeah, just like searing judgment and gossip and all that stuff. And so part of like one of our strategies, which is not at all, isn't very feminist when we have to go to a birthday party is to hang out with the dads because the dads don't talk. They just stand around on their (laughs)
0: phone. (laughs) They're a lot less willing to run down everybody. They're happy they have Hopefully, someone is watching the child.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that's not true of all. all no, no, I know it's not mothers, but because we've made some really nice friends, in I bet. So. But sometimes, yeah,
0: yeah. Sometimes you know. So a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, is adopted and he has siblings that are not adopted. And he was talking with his mom about his adoption one time, and she knew his frame of mind at that moment. And she Mm -hmm. said to him very directly, I chose you. Mm -hmm. I had three children and I loved them, but I simply chose you. And I think to be an adoptive parent That is what you do. You do choose a you choose to open your heart and your soul and your home to someone. And then, of course, what I did learn in this book is it's not an easy process. You talk about the classes and things that you had to take that. The average person who simply gets pregnant doesn't have to do. But I thought, oh my, that's a lot of hoops to jump through. And some of them are understandable. You know, of course, agencies want to know that the prospective parents are okay. But um, you took a year or more of classes. Is that Mm -hmm. right?
1: Yep, that's right. It was nine months. So it was almost exactly. Wow. (laughs) But yeah, it was really, it was a pretty profound process because it gave us a chance to talk to people who have experienced different, levels or different stages of adoption too to hear from birth parents also and from their perspective what it what it's been like um to talk to like doctors to talk to you know psychologists who are doctors too um to <laughs> parents to learn CPR you know all those things that I hope I still remember <laughs> Well, I didn't
0: parent. even know I, that surprised me it was something small but I was like oh okay that's yeah. good to know but regular what sorry, pardon, I was about to say regular parents that's not a nice way to put it, so birth parents aren't aren't required to take c p r classes, right. and I was like, oh my goodness, yeah, yeah
1: it's really good, I do think that those are things that everyone should have access to. I don't yes. know if everyone should be required to do one, but I do think that having that information available. Um, and because our agency also focuses on African-American, or this part of it, focused on African-American kids and some of the adoptions are transracial, there was a lot of information about African-American culture, raising African-American children, what it's like, like to be a family that is multiracial, Um, how to do hair and skin, um, Mm -hmm. skin care, like, you know, some of the things that um, if you are non-African American, you might not know, but are really, really important for helping support, you know, a kid's self-esteem and sense of, you know, sense of themselves. So, um, yeah, I think that that there's a lot of information and um, I think it's a good thing. Maybe-
0: I think it's a great thing. So as um, you're an English teacher or professor, yeah. is that right? So yeah. totally I'm, nice. I, I'm <laughs> curious about, so the title of your book I, intrigues me because I see that you use the word choosing and not chosen.
1: Was mm-hmm. that on purpose? Well, you know, we we played with so many titles. And I think originally I had suggested chosen family and the... Um, I think it was the editor who I was talking to was saying, well, you know, this is like an active, more active word. And so it's really about, it kind of summons both the concept of kind of chosen family as kind of a queer family concept Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. LGBTQ concept that's very important to us as a culture, but also like the, the process of deciding to have a family that was part of our story and, um, that how those things kind of work together. So in the end I was sold, but I had another title completely that I really liked. (laughs) And it turned out that um, someone else published a book with that title, you know, just a few months before I was ready to let go of my manuscript. And it's a very different book. I think it was a book about theology. Um, (laughs) So I didn't feel like it was competing, but I I couldn't really use the title that I wanted, so.
0: I like choosing because I also feel that it's still active. Mm -hmm. I I feel like your book certainly points out the fact that you and your partner and your daughter are still choosing family. And that was a very nice thing. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have a website or social media that you'd like to share?
1: I have. Okay. I am on Instagram um, at Oyster Francesca. I think is what it is. I am working on my website, but for now, you can find me at um, DePaul English, DePaul, I think it's DePaul.edu, DePaul's English Department website. Okay. we'll get you to my writings. So for sure. on Facebook, too.
0: Oh, lovely. Okay. Thank you so much, Fanny, for coming on and talking about your memoir, Choosing Family. It is so delicious, and I cannot recommend it enough.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate you. And thank you for reading.
0: Thank you. Hang on for me just a minute. Okay. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, Dan, and on Instagram and Facebook at Go Out With Dan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out with Dan.